0: Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the executive director of MTI. I'm here today with my co-host Mark Cook, materials specialist at the Dow Chemical Company, and Brian Linneman, the engineering manager at RL Industries. And we're really happy to have Brian with us today. Our topic today is dual laminate equipment. And we thought we'd start off just talking about sort of a real life example of dual laminate equipment that a regular regular homeowner in America may actually be familiar with. Mark, can you give us an example of dual-laminate equipment touching our everyday lives?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about my dual-laminate water heater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I bought one about 15 years ago. What what got me on it was it was guaranteed for life, and and I get tired of replacing water heaters every six or eight years. So uh, I put this thing in, and uh, it like I say, it was 15 years ago, and it's worked splendidly. The the one interesting story I was telling you guys before we started recording, when I installed it and I was bringing it online, it started popping and cracking and making a lot of noises louder than what you hear in an acoustic emission test. And so uh, I got a little concerned and valved it back out and checked my water pressure in my in my house, and I was over 150 psi. So I had to address that before I put it back online. I got really lucky that I didn't have to buy two dual laminate water heaters. It's your lifetime guarantee. That that is great water pressure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are really jealous that you have that kind of water pressure.
1: Yeah, there's too much of a good thing as possible. Well,
0: it's great to have Brian with us today. Um, Brian started his career at RL Industries in 1997. Um, he has a mechanical engineering degree from University of Dayton with a PE registration in Ohio, and he's responsible for all of the engineering activities at RL Industries and support supports the overall operations there. Um and RL Industries is really one of the the premier players in this space of fabrication of dual laminate equipment. So I think we're gonna learn a lot today about about dual laminate equipment and about its applications for our industry. So can you just start off by telling us what dual laminate equipment is?
1: Dual laminate is takes all of the all of the aspects of FRP and adds a thermoplastic lining. All the things that apply to straight FRP apply to dual laminates, but we've added a bonded, in most cases, a bonded thermoplastic lining to the inside.
0: There's a lot of overlap between dual laminate equipment, but then straight FRP equipment, and then you also have lined equipment where the liners are bonded to steel. Can you just kind of describe when you would do dual laminate versus the other options?
1: With dual laminate equipment, you know, one of the benefits of dual laminate is uh, compared to lined steel, you've got the inherent corrosion resistance of the FRP. So you not only have the enhanced corrosion resistance of the thermoplastic lining, but right behind it, you have, in most cases, you have a, a, a substrate that is very corrosion resistant itself compared to lined steel, where if you have a compromise of the lining, that's what's next. Right. You so. Brian, with Dill lamb, when you're, you're FRP, you you tend to have a corrosion veil, correct, uh, behind the plastic liner? Or do you correct corrosion veil on the FRP? Yes. In, in my experience, we have always had a corrosion veil, a full FRP corrosion barrier behind the thermoplastic lining. And that's typically there because if you need a thermoplastic lining, in a lot of cases, you're... You have an environment that requires this instead of straight FRP but by having the FRP corrosion barrier behind the thermoplastic lining you have that secondary defense should you ever have a compromise of your thermoplastic lining.
0: So dual laminate equipment is usually used in more aggressive chemical environments than straight FRP. Why is Mark's water heater dual laminate rather than just an FRP water heater?
1: Because of the, the water quality, um, you know, thermoplastic lining I mean, you can get FRP tanks that are are good for potable water, but the thermoplastic lining is gonna is gonna be better for water. I don't know, Mark. What do you say? Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, the other thing I'm thinking of is maybe the self cleaning aspect, but uh, yeah, I don't. That's a really good question. I don't know. Quit picking on my water heater. I, I mean, I mean, in, in that case, you make the lining, and then it doesn't take much of an FRP over it. You could probably get yeah, cer at a certain point a dual laminate becomes very cost effective in certain very specific cases. It's typically not the case, but uh but that's probably part of it too.
0: But maybe just because it's smoother, it's better for purity or less likely to have microbes.
1: That could be part of it. Yeah, and like Brian said too, like with the commodity like this, you know, you make that that uh plastic cylinder and then you're just laying up FRP over top of it. If you didn't do that, you're you're using a mandrel and it it might be it might be simpler fabrication and it's probably not bought it's probably not fabric back lining it's probably just a blown or a roto molded lining and then they just wrap frp over it which is perfectly fine for what you're doing
0: so can the how does the cost compare a straight frp to dual laminate
1: in most cases dual laminate is going to be a premium Uh, In a lot of cases probably a significant premium over frp straight frp
0: Okay. So you do it generally in industry, you do it when the chemical resistor requires it.
1: Yes. So, real quick, you mentioned bonded lighters bonded to steel vessels compared to dual laminate. And uh, I think there's some other differences there that are that are worth talking about, right? Like, to I me, mean, one of the things is the quality of the bond. You know, the significant difference between lined steel and lined FRP is with lined steel, you start with. The structure the, the pressure boundary is finished and after the pressure boundary is finished you go in through a manway and you line it with your you put your line you bond your lining in after with frp we do it with dual laminates. we do it in reverse we make the lining first we weld it form it weld it and then we support it and then we we lay up the frp on the outside uh and that's there's two ways to bond the lining one is a chemical bond and that's typically limited to pvc and cpvc then you have a mechanical bond which is everything else but with dual laminates we get an intimate bond to the lining uh, because we are basically molding the frp structure onto the lining which is super important because any trapped air behind there is is what is eventually going to cause accumulation of chemicals for permeation and blistering, right? And, and in, the, in the end of the product, yeah, you know, the, the end of life for, for that product. So, yeah, I see. I see that as a big difference. The other big advantages, a couple of advantages, is we we can really limit the total weld length. You know, the lining, dual laminate lining start out as a sheet or a roll, and we have to form it and weld it into a continuous lining. When we make the lining first, we can we can really optimize our sheet and we can strategically place our welds and limit the total weld length. We can also use a lot of machine welding where you can't do that when we line after the fact. We can mm-hmm. use machine welding technologies that give a much higher efficiency weld than you might have when you do it, it when you're lining after the fact. So you're touching on some stuff I wanted to ask about. Uh, one is is forming. That appears to me as a as an outsider looking in as one of the real arts of the fabrication of dual lamb is being good at forming. And so can you talk a little bit about how forming is done? Yeah, forming, there are two primary ways we form. So again, we start out with a flat sheet. It's a sheet or a roll of thermoplastic. And we may weld it into a larger sheet uh, but basically we get a blank that's big enough to accommodate the final form to size that we want and we've got match molded press forming which is you're gonna do that in a press with with hydraulic or some other kind of force and you're gonna you're gonna heat the sheet up and you're gonna you're gonna press it between two matched molds That's one way the other way is vacuum thermoforming where instead of having a matched set of molds we have a single-sided mold and then we use differential Pressure or vacuum. To, we heat it up and then we mold it into uh, into the shape. All else being the same, with those two technologies, vacuum forming is about eighty uh, percent technical and twenty percent art. And that twenty percent art really makes a difference. Yeah, and I, and I guess I my comment was based on having seen some that maybe didn't have the twenty percent. <laughs> you know, if you don't if you don't place those welds in the right places and really think about how each each piece is, is shifting and stretching and, and potential for wrinkles and all that stuff it can it can get really ugly yes it can where you locate the welds in the sheet where how the sheets are oriented you know thermoplastic these these thermoplastic sheets are extruded and calendared so there is a grain to the sheet and understanding that and, and it's different with different polymers some polymers are are more um, conducive to thermoforming, where others um, others are less so, and that's that's where managing those details really makes a difference.
0: Are these techniques you're talking about primarily for the cylinder part of the vessel, or for the heads?
1: Primarily, they're for the heads.
0: Well, the cylinder is pretty straightforward, I. Th-
1: right. the The cylinder is usually welded from smaller sheets, but they tend to be flat. I was going to say they would also some complex shapes, like support ledges and with pockets and. You know what I mean? Right. There's, yeah, the yes. internal like, supports that are pretty complicated or nozzles. Right. You, you've got, you, you have thermoforming operations with, not with the shell itself, but as Mark said, the, uh, where you've got internal monolithic ledges, those have to be pressed and welded together into a cylinder and then a, and into a ring and then attached to the cylinder. Uh, nozzle faces, uh, sometimes even nozzle necks, have to be heated and formed. To get the, the curvature or the weld alignment that you're looking for.
0: And just, just to give people context, what are the size limitations we're talking about here?
1: There's really no size limitation. Anything you can do in FRP, you can typically do in dual laminates. Now, there are limitations to that, but, uh, but from a scale perspective, most of its scales, some of the details like shell joints, you have a, a large diameter tank that you might make in sections, and then you go to bring those sections together. Uh, will typically leave the thermoplastic lining exposed at the joints. And when you have a large cylinder and and you get to that sheet alignment, that scale up can be challenging. But generally speaking, what you can do in FRP, uh, you can do in dual laminates, But there are some details that get a little harder with dual laminates.
0: So, what's the biggest dual laminate tank you've ever made at RL?
1: We have done. Um, diameter, we have done 24 foot, but then at each overall scale, we did we did 18 foot, about 100 foot tall with pressure out of fluoropolymer with vacuum rating. So that was probably the the largest one we did, but that was all shop fabricated. That was not field. When you go into the field with dual ammo, it's that's where it can get real challenging from a assembly perspective. So when we were talking about forming a little bit, you talked about forming to get the weld geometry one I take that as you know I, I've seen that there's a preference to not have welds at corners right you try to like for a nozzle for example you're going to try to layer that liner from the cylinder down into the neck of the uh or the bore of the nozzle and then and then do a, a circumferential weld there instead of right right having a sharp corner right so I was just curious like are there are there places you can't avoid that are there still areas where you have to have a, a sharp corner. Yeah. The, you know, we try to avoid the weld. The weld is always an inherent stress point Yeah, you know, because it's a discontinuity in the sheet. And if we can locate those welds in areas where we don't have a corresponding uh, geometric uh, change in the geometry of the structure, we, t- we try to do that. Uh, like flaring a nozzle face into the neck and then putting the weld in the neck can't always avoid that. Uh, there are cases where we um, we are forced to make those compromises, but I think as long as it's intentional and we it's not something that comes up as a surprise, uh, we can usually manage this. Thing. Yeah, and the, and the move to automated welding is is huge. Can you estimate, like if you're doing a dual amp column, what, what percent of the welds end up being some sort of automated process versus the hand weld? Typically, you can get about 50% machine weld in any particular column. If things scale up and your axial welds in the shell become a larger percentage of your total weld length, you know, you can reach 70 or 80%. Two types of machine welding that we use, one is butt welding, the other is flow fusion welding. Low fusion welding is probably the higher performance weld compared to the two, and that is a single pass heat weld. We have to do it, generally speaking, we do it flat. But in our case, in, in my experience, we really optimize machine welding using flow fusion welding. What makes you say that flow fusion welding is is more reliable than the butt welding? I'm really interested. I think, you know, flow fusion welding, you get inherent sheet alignment because of the way the the sheet is clamped together. In welding in general, we talk a lot about welding, but we I don't always hear in the conversation sheet alignment, especially with thin gauge sheets. Flow fusion welding is very conducive and good sheet alignment, whereas butt welding with thin gauge sheet is a little bit harder, just in my experience. I mean, the machines are, uh, commercially available equipment is pretty good at lining that up. But even with a butt weld, you have material displacement beyond the edge of the sheet or beyond the surface of the sheet. So uh, they're both good techniques, but I found flow fusion welding to be, we get very, very high weld factors with flow fusion welding. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. One other question about automated welding. Uh, I'm sorry, Doctor Heather. I'll I'll stop talking here in a second. But this is really interesting to me. What about when you do the automated welding? Do you uh, do you always do cap strips, backside cap strips? Typically, no. Typically, we um, when we do flow fusion welding, we do not add. We don't disturb the minimal disturbance of the backing at the fusion weld. So there is a little bit of a change at the at the weld uh, related to the backing, but uh, we don't add an additional cancer. So I, I wanted to share a story with you anyway. This this was a couple of weeks ago, I was in a plant and uh, we had a dual-AM pipe, wasn't, wasn't fabricated by you guys. And there was a longitudinal crack in a branch. It was about a 30 inch long branch, uh, eight inch diameter pipe. It was definitely a, an automatic weld. I don't know what process was used, but they had removed the fabric. It looked like maybe a half inch back from the weld on both sides. So we had like an inch wide area that wasn't uh, bonded with no backing strip, and and we had a longitudinal crack along that disbonded area. Some of it was right in the weld. Some of it was outside of, probably even outside of the heat affected zone. You know, kind of wandered a bit, but it went the whole length of that branch. And um uh, and so I, it was just interesting to me because I, I I was. I, I was under that understanding that we didn't we didn't do backing strips on on automated welding, but with this one, maybe because they would removed so much fabric, uh, and then it was a cold surface. It was like ten degrees out, so a lot of tensile stress in the liner. Just curious, what you, any thoughts you have on that without seeing? Yeah, I think you know with flow fusion welding, if uh, you know just the nature of the way it welds, it typically keeps any fabric at the edge out of the weld. And then the volume at the weld, you know, we, we really want the gauge of the sheet to be the same thickness all the way up to the edge. So when we, when we do weld it, the thermal expansion of the sheet, we basically take it to, to melting temperature and a little thermal expansion of the sheet provides our pressure. But having the right amount of material there is important. If you, if you take too much, if you take material out and try to put material in with a cap strip, uh, that can be, you may not get the weld you want.
0: Well, and this whole question of whether uh, cap strips are preferable or not, whether that's the better way to design a joint, is something that MTI looked at through an MTI project over the last couple of years. And Brian, you were a huge part of that, helping to fabricate samples for that project, did looked at three different materials, looked at some with no offset, some where there, were, there was significant offset, more than 20% between the two sheets, with backing strips, without backing strips, and then did a series of tests. So, you know, just an example of of the type of collaborative work that MTI tries to do to answer these questions that are nagging questions, you know, that are that are continually out there in industry and we were trying to develop some data to, to put that question to, to rest. Do you wanna talk about the results of that project a little bit?
1: So the MTI project, we looked at a couple of configurations of welds with and without cap strips to try to understand whether cap strips were detrimental to the weld, did they enhance the weld? Um, we did it with a number of polymers. Um, and, and we got some interesting results.
0: So all of the details of the results of that project are available for members only on the member side of the website. But it's something worth looking into because there was a lot of work over several years that that had some really interesting findings for three different materials with and without capsules.
1: So Brian, so one of the things we we had a lot of discussions about during that NTI project was, and and unfortunately I didn't do a good job of setting it up in the scope of the project, right? We just went with with the standard cap strip width and thickness that you guys use, but you know we had some discussions after the fact because what we found was you know a lot of the fabricators have differing opinions and differing practices on how wide, how thick a cap strip ought to be. So. I'd just be interested to get your thoughts on what's ideal there and and why are you guys where you're at in terms of the size of those things. In the case of fabric back cap strips, which is what we, when we are cap stripping, we are applying it on the fabric side. For partially fluorinated polymers and and polyolefins, we'll typically use a quarter inch wide cap strip and, and then we, and we thin it out. So instead of using standard sheet gauge, we'll take some of that material off. And thin it down to say about 60,000 60 mils because the purpose of it is not to build thickness at the weld it's to restore that fabric backing so you want to remove enough so or you want to have just enough so you can adhere the backing to the back of the weld but not add so much heat to the weld because of the volume of plastic that you're you're doing you're adding an, an unnecessary amount of heat to the weld after the fact for fully fluorinated plastics, we'll typically use a, a wider cap strip, but with the same requirement to thin it out, just so you have enough polymer to attach it, but no more than that. Why do you go wider on the fully fluorinated, and uh, is it is it something to do with the, the width of the heat-affected zone? Well, it, it tends to be with the, with the fully fluorinated polymers. Often, those are glass-backed because of their forming temperatures, and and just the the glass- backing versus the synthetic backing alternatives, they tend to have a, a larger, the knit is more coarse. So we tend to have to remove a little bit more of that to get all of the fabric out of the weld, away from the weld. Whereas the synthetics have a much smaller knit size and they don't tend to fray as much. So um, that, that's one of the primary reasons why we put a wider cap strip on it, on a fully fluorinated plastic.
0: So what we're talking about Welding of cap strips. I mean, this is during the fabrication process. But can you also talk about uh, repair methods for dual laminate equipment?
1: Sure. Um, You know, MTI did a a great project where um, for a lot of different types of linings, but it included dual laminates. And and how do you go in and repair a dual laminate that's been compromised or a dual laminate lining that's been compromised? And and typically, what we do is we go in and we, we remove it with conventional tools. You know, we basically cut and scrape out the lining. Uh, prepare the FRP substrate as long as that FRP substrate is still, you know in 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 good condition. And then we can uh, we can bond that lining, a piece of that lining back in. Uh, typically we use a vacuum bag to provide even pressure to bond it back in. And then we'll do a, a one-sided weld around the perimeter of that and we use generous radiuses when we apply that repair. My experience, we've done that several times where we've gone in and repaired linings in service and, and in new fabrication where something in fabrication wasn't exactly right. We had to go in and do a, a local repair. And it's so it's very repairable.
0: How do you check that?
1: That's uh, a good question. So after you've if you've put the lining repair in and, and you've welded it, how do you check it? Typically when we bond it in, the, the layer that will be in intimate contact to the back of the lining will be... A conductive material, typically a conductive veil. And we're able to bring that all the way to the edge of the weld. So there's sufficient conductive media near the weld to be able to do a spark test. Uh, We'll usually test that before we do the weld. So once the lining is in the repair section is in place and we've prepared the weld, we'll run a spark tester around it to make sure we generate a spark without a weld. And then we'll apply the weld bead and then spark test it again. And that brings up a good point. Uh, when In new fabrication, it's important to have 100% conductive target on the back side of the lining. When, when we fabricate dual laminates, we have the option to either target the welds only or the whole sheet. Uh, and again, that target is a, is a conductive veil on the backside. It's the first layer we put down against the back of the sheet. When you do 100% targeting over the whole sheet, if you have a case where you have a repair or you've got damage to the sheet, you can do a spark test, whereas when you don't have that, your ability to do a spark test is not as good. But again, when we do the repair, even without 100% conductive target, we can put that conductive target in the region of the repair and, and do a spark test.
0: So is your preference to usually do a conductive liner throughout the whole vessel behind the?
1: Yes, we we always do 100% carbon target. And, uh, and the, the reference AM, ASME standards, RTP1, requires that because that that would be best practice.
0: Let's just take a short break for a word from our sponsors right now. The heart of MTI is our ability to meet in person, to network and to get to know one another at our in-person meetings. MTI has three meetings a year in the US, two meetings a year in Asia, and two meetings a year in Europe. Those are in-person live events where valuable technical information is shared and our members are able to work together to develop and work on projects. However, during the era of COVID, we all learned that there were some slim benefits to being able to operate virtually. MTI is pleased to announce an MTI virtual global TAC meeting. It'll be September 6th and 7th from 9 to noon Eastern time. Please see the MTI website for more information about the technical content of this meeting and our other upcoming live in-person meetings. But we hope you'll be able to join us September 6th and 7th for MTI's first global virtual TAC meeting. Welcome back to Corrosion Chronicle.
1: Brian, so what, if anything, is different about FRP or dual laminate compared to just straight FRP with regards to Section 10 and design codes? That's a good question. So there there are two design codes, ASME design codes that we typically reference. One is Section 10 of the boiler code, and the other is the ASME RTP1 standard. And the RTP1 standard, it includes thermoplastic linings in the scope, which is all else being the same, unique. You get to the boiler codes, they really don't address the lining. So when it comes to a Section 10 pressure vessel, you can put a thermoplastic lining on the inside, and Section 10 really doesn't address it, doesn't address the details. Whereas uh, the ASME RTP1 standard, uh, it's not boiler code, but it's uh, a best practice standard. It's pretty specific on how the lining needs to be managed, the, the thermoplastic lining. But really, any vessel you build to Section 10, you could build with a dual laminate lining without affecting how you might code stamp it. Okay, so that kind of leads me to the next next question: Is my understanding is you guys are the only Section 10 dual laminate fabricator? Period. Why is that? There's multiple Section 10 FRP fabricators. Just none of the other guys uh, want to mess up the lining. Is that when you do dual laminates, there is a inherent complexity compared to straight FRP. To go from straight FRP to dual laminates requires not only technical knowledge, but also a a significant tool set. The tooling required to do dual laminates well is significant. Yeah. Um, And and then you layer the requirements of ASME Section 10 on top of that, just the rigors of setting up an ASME-compliant system and maintaining that. When you combine the two together, it is a it's a business commitment you have to make, and that's probably why the list is pretty short of shops that do dual laminates and are section ten are section ten certified. Yeah, and you're involved in those subcommittees. Is you know is there much discussion about that about the fact that there are more fabricators trying to be uh, qualified to to be a qualified fabricator? Like, is there any path forward for that? It's interesting you say that uh, you know I just was looking at that for for another reason and there are there are 25 section 10 shops in the world so certified to RP I think eight to ten are in the US but actually in the past in the past three years, the number has gone from 20 to 25 oh so whether they're doing dual laminates or not, isn't really called out, isn't visible from uh, looking at scopes. I, I was doing this for uh, a report to the boiler and the board of pressure technology for ASME, and I'm just was just looking at where are we with Section 10 from a code? How many shops are there? And uh, so I happen to be looking at these details. So the timing is 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 good. So we have had ASME has had more shops getting Section 10 certified, which is good for the industry, but whether they will. Uh, be involved in dual laminate linings, is hard to tell.
0: Brian, can you just explain a little bit more the difference between RTP1 and ASME Section 10?
1: Really, in in the world of dual laminates, there are two ASME certifications that would involve dual laminates. One is RTP1 and one is Section 10. Uh, RTP1 covers full vacuum up to about one atmosphere of internal pressure. That is not boiler code. It's not state. In generally speaking, it's not law. In a few cases, it is. Um, but once you go of, above one atmosphere of internal pressure, that's when boiler code takes over. And Section 10 is the section within the boiler code that covers reinforced plastics. So um, so Section 10 requires ASME certification and then covers the higher pressure, relatively speaking, the higher pressure FRPs.
0: So anytime you have over one atmosphere, you need to be under, then you fall under eight.
1: In a code state. And there I think there are maybe three states that are not code states, but otherwise in the US, once you get above one atmosphere, you would be required to code stamp it.
0: And how is that managed in Europe?
1: Typically that is done under the European Pressure Directive. Um, and, and and there's been some alignment. ASME has changed increased our the pressure on a certain class of vessel to align with the pressure directive to get better. ASME is trying to be a global Address global needs, um, but but the European Pressure Directive typically covers uh, covers that in the absence of ASME. If you think about it, it's aligned with other materials. Like if you have a, a steel vessel, same deal. If it's if you're if if you want the maximum operating pressure to be or maximum allowable working pressure to be over one atmosphere, then it's a code vessel and it falls under Section Eight. And so if it's fiberglass and it's over one atmosphere, it falls under Section Ten. In Europe, pressure directive kicks in at about, I think, a half a bar, so about seven PSIG, oh. but below that, I don't, it's, the requirements may be different.
0: So Brian, those codes, you, you know, the limits you're you're giving speak to pressure, but what are the practical, what are the limits on temperature, upper and lower temperature limits for dual AM versus just FRP or other options?
1: that's a good question typically with dual laminates uh, at the lower temperatures so you, you back up there's a there's a wide variety of linings that have a wide variety of temperature capabilities and at the lower temperatures um, often the lining will will dictate the max temperature but as we get into higher performance linings th- uh, fully fluorinated type linings uh, they have a very high temperature resistance compared to the FRP. So the FRP structure has a inherent temperature limitation. You know, in the 250F to, you could say up to 300F range, once you get above 250F with FRP, you're starting to get hot. Uh, And where the thermoplastics fall within that range kind of determines what the limitations are. What's the lower temperature range? Uh, Well, the lower temperature range Frequently, it's not the absolute temperature, but it's how quickly you get there. The thermal expansion coefficients of the thermoplastic lining and the FRP structure are very different. So when you're heating them up, the thermoplastic lining will tend to expand, um, but is limited by the FRP. When you rapidly cool a dual laminate that is, let's say, has been in a process and is is warm, if you rapidly cool it, that thermoplastic lining is going to is going to shrink and have a tendency to pull off of the the thermoplastic lining. So I would say, generally speaking, I mean there there are minimum temperatures. You know, minus minus twenty F is a number I have seen. But when you get when you get to the cold temperatures, it's real how fast you get there. Um, and then sometimes with transport, especially with the brittle thermoplastics like PVC and CPVC, you really have to be careful about transporting that equipment, you know, new equipment to a site, you have to be careful with that because the, those plastics get very brittle at lower temperatures. So the potential for damage during shipment can go up.
0: Right, right. So I really want to look at using them carefully if you're anywhere north, like up in Canada.
1: Yes. I well, just, one other clarifying question on that topic is just like with uh, body layers on steel, which we've mentioned a couple of times there you're often concerned about the adhesive and uh, its temperature limitations uh, when you're at that upper temperature range. With dual-AM, lam, is no adhesive, correct? And, and you're really just looking at the plastic liner at FRP. That's correct. There is is there isn't an adhesive. Um, with the chemically bonded linings, which are PBC and CPBC, we may apply a, a priming resin, enhances the bonding, but it is in the same temperature range as the other materials. So essentially we our temperature limitations are based on the structure and not an intermediate adhesive.
0: So are there rule of thumbs around prevention of thermal shock?
1: You know, when it comes to thermal shock, a good example that I was given was we talked we've talked about process columns and you know in a shutdown a process a packed process column is um you know the packing is removed and, and a lot of times the, the vessel is might still be warm and i know one case where an upper manway and a lower manway were both opened at the same time and a draft was induced and the whole lining shattered because it was rapidly cooled down um, so you know looking for a rule of thumb in that case um you know when you're entering or servicing a vessel that might still be, you know, during a shutdown might still be warm. Don't induce a draft. Don't induce rapid, a rapid difference in the in the temperature inside versus outside or inside versus the structure to avoid that lining wanting to contract pretty rapidly. Oh, I wanted to ask one other question. One of my favorite topics with lined equipment is a the frequent pain point is uh, flanges. You know, I think everybody who's dealt with MRP has had Problematic, you know, flanges um, on on equipment one way or another. Would like to get your comments on that about alternative flange designs, ways to as a as a customer to develop a procurement spec such that you're going to get flanges that can reliably seal. Yeah, uh, regarding flanges, you know, generally speaking, you know, you in your design you want to minimize flange loads as much as possible, and I mean that can be hard to do, but keeping the loads off of Straight FRP and dual laminar flanges um, is always going to uh, extend the life. When it comes to assembling flanges, you always want to use a torque wrench and you always want to draw the flange down evenly and in steps. And I often get asked, What's the max torque? And you always have to answer that with the torque and the process to draw it down. From a flange design perspective, you know, in my experience, the The stubborn ring or vanstone style flanges tend to be less sensitive to poor assembly techniques than a full face flange, preferably one with a composite backing ring versus a steel backing ring. That way you have the same materials. Flange flatness in new equipment is important too. A lot of the guidance we give on flanges assumes the flange is flat. And when you have a flange that is not flat, which is a challenge in FRP fabrication. You have exothermic reactions making it during the process. Flanges tend to tend to draw back. Um, so making sure you have a flange flat, making sure you have a flat flange to start is important. While we're on the flange, topic of flanges, one mistake I made in a piece of equipment I bought was the nozzle neck length on the flanges. You know, I just went with with what would have been standard, and uh, and then we had integral insulation which I guess we didn't really talk about it, but integral installations, a wonderful aspect of, of dual lamb and fiberglass. But uh, if you do that, you really want to try to extend those nozzle neck lengths a little bit so that uh, you've got plenty of room for bolting and assembly. That is a great detail to bring up because, you know, typical flange face to inside of the shell length for FRP is six inches. Well, we immediately go to eight inches. We always recommend our customers go to eight inches to... Provide enough space for proper laminate tie into the shell. Well, then you add insulation to that. You may need another two inches beyond that. And then you add a add a stub ring design, which essentially doubles the envelope of the flange. Uh, so yes, being sensitive to flange projection, so it works practically um, is important, and that can easily be overlooked. Yeah, and do you want to explain real quick what what integral insulation is, just for anybody that's not familiar with it? Yes, an in- integral insulation is where we fabricate the FRP structure, and at the end of that, we can you can wrap foam sheet, or you can spray a foam on it, and then cover it with an FRP jacket. Um, so you get a uh, you get insulation that is intimately in contact with the FRP, and then it has this weather-resistant continuous jacket. Or frequently, we'll put expansion joints in it. But uh, it's a factory-installed insulation package with an FRP jacket. Yeah, we have found that's that's a significant savings over the life cycle of the vessel. Uh not having to reinsulate, no risk of CUI, obviously. Uh it just that's a good system. It can in in, in the right service, that can be a, a big difference maker. regarding insulation, by reducing that thermal gradient across the wall, you can also in some cases uh, reduce your permeation rates that thermoplastic linings. Is- often have permeation, process permeation through them. And by insulating, in some cases, by cutting that delta T across the wall, you can improve your permeation.
0: So speaking of permeation, MTI, another, another thing that we've done over the last couple of years is actually work on developing a technique to monitor that permeation. Uh, and Brian, you've installed that these RFID sensors in a couple of vessels. Can you briefly describe that technology?
1: Yeah, the RFID technology uh, that, that NTI has developed uh, can be used on FRP and dual laminates, and what it does is it embeds passive RFID sensor at different points in the thickness. Uh, and In an FRP corrosion barrier, it's between the layers, and on a dual laminate, it might be just behind the thermoplastic lining, but it, it can detect the presence of permeants through Through the corrosion barrier, or wherever you might want to detect them. Again, this is all this is all installed typically with new fabrication, and then we can read that with a commercial reader loaded with some software developed by MTI, and we can we can get a sense of uh, whether there's been permeation in the wall. So it's relatively it's new technology, and and we are RL we are working to implement that. We've put it in a number of vessels so far.
0: Great. Right. X. Yabel, it's a, uh, a note on that in the, show, in the show notes as well. Brian, you've covered so many details today and it's clear that this is, well, at first glance, it might seem like pretty simple, straightforward technology. I mean, after all, Mark has it in his water heater, but in reality, when you're, when you're building, you know, significantly sized vessels or columns and, you know, massive plant equipment, there was a lot of details and a lot of aspects to not only specifying this right, but inspecting it, maintaining it. Um, making sure that you know all of these aspects are managed so that you can come up with the right vessel i just think it's worth mentioning that mti not only has a number of resources so we can link some of those in the show notes as well because we've done a lot of projects over the years putting together books and guidelines around this equipment but we also have been doing three or four day class on dual laminate equipment that covers all of these aspects and it's just a really in-depth you know, hands-on and and practical class taught by some subject matter experts, you being one of them. And we've appreciated your participation in that class. So, do you want to just mention briefly about anything else that you covered in that? And we'll put, um, we can also put notes in our show notes about the next upcoming training of that, that MTI is
1: offering. Yeah, the MTI FRP and dual laminate training has been a great program. Uh, it started with FRP and then we expanded it to dual laminates. Uh, it's a it's a great team, uh, a lot of experience, uh, bringing together uh, just a lot of practical experience related to FRP and dual laminates. And we do have a uh, another session coming up. And MTI will publish that soon, and that's um, a great opportunity to learn about FRP and dual laminates for for anyone of any any understanding. Uh, I'm pretty sure you'll learn something. I might interject. It's uh it's also uh the, the instructors are a good mix of uh of end users and uh fabricators.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. This was really, really informative, really helpful, and um, we covered a lot of a lot of material starting with water heaters and going to the most sophisticated plant equipment. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.